0: And I think being able to sell B2B requires like a very certain set of skills, which is based on experience, based on your network, who you know really matters, I think. And built, is also based on a very different sales system as well, a very different marketing system too. So so really strong founders that we see are founders who uh, have already some experience either when it comes to long, managing long sales cycles still driving industry attention.
1: Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Bricks and Bytes podcast, your go-to for all things construction and property technology. On today's show, we have Kingma, Venture Capitalist and Managing Director in the UK for PropTech One Ventures, known as PT1. Kingma talks us through what makes a successful founder, what goes into due diligence, how to work with VCs, and how to become one. We then get King's mad takes on Ward as question, according to ChatGPT. Enjoying the podcast? Please hit the subscribe button. Guys, a very exciting announcement. We are partnering with Procore and will be visiting the Procore Grand Break Conference on September 19th and 20th. We will be interviewing guests and speakers, and you don't want to miss it. Each year, Procore brings together a community of global construction professionals to discover, learn and innovate. Join us at Procore Grand Break Conference in Chicago on September 19th and 20th for the most innovative construction event of the year. Learn more by visiting www.procore.com. Our listeners can use promo code BRICKS100 to enjoy $100 off the ticket price. Now onto audio version only. If you're enjoying our podcast, please check us out on Spotify or Apple or wherever you listen to your podcast from. And if you enjoyed it, please leave us a review. This helps us to get more amazing guests to give you guys the best and most informative content on technology in the built world. And shout out to sponsor Beta. If you want to connect with some of the biggest players in the construction tech world, including Tier 1 building contractors, some of the biggest construction tech companies, Investors and advisors, check them out by visiting www.d-beta.com.
2: You are listening to Bricks and Bytes podcast, where we take you on a journey in construction, technology
1: and business. All right, let's get this episode started. King Mark, great to have you here. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks, guys. Um, so maybe let us tell us a little bit more about you. And so, from you went from business owner to board of directors of UK PropTech Association, and now you're running UK arm of uh, PT1. What decisions in the previous life made you are where you are
0: now? Oh yeah. So thanks for having me here today. So my background is that I kind of spent the first five years of my career working in tech. So I was working in a couple of tech startups as a product manager. And then I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to co-found my own startup along with another kind of employee, a colleague basically of mine. And yeah, we ran this startup called go carer full-time for about two and a bit years we turned into a non-profit the startup's designed to help create better accessibility towards high quality care for autistic children so essentially we wanted to provide a team of therapists and a team of carers to to help both parents and also kids on the autism spectrum as well so completely unrelated to prop tech completely unrelated to actually anything i'd done in my background as well so i made quite a few mistakes i definitely had quite a lot of lessons as well and my ambition at the time and you know to some extent today is, still very much to have my own startup in the future. And I thought after kind of running GoCaro full-time for a few years, going to venture capital would be quite a good opportunity, certainly from a learning perspective, from a networking perspective as well, in order to better kind of facilitate becoming a startup founder in the future. And one of my theories was that being a specialist VC, i.e. focusing on one or two fo- verticals as opposed to being a generous VC, would be better equip myself in terms of therefore understanding better a market and industry and better identify those opportunities, better getting to know, you know, great people as well who could be future, I don't know, partners, collaborators, customers or whatever as well. And sort of by chance, I landed in PropTech VC via a friend who just connected me to someone who was, you know, setting PropTech VC up at the time. And so I kind of stumbled into that industry, but real estate and construction are two super huge topics. There are so many opportunities to <coughs> digitize, to, Innovate in these places as well. And so that's kept me really, really engaged and interested over the last four and a half years or five years since I basically started in this space as well. Mm-hmm. So, in the first
1: startup, did you exit it or
0: what, what? No, no, I haven't. I didn't sell it. It's still, well, we still own it. We just don't really operate it anymore. So, because it was an in person service, lockdown meant it was very challenging to actually run those sessions in person. So, we all kind of got busy as well because we were all basically volunteering our time mm, to uh, to run it. It's yeah.
1: tough. Yeah, you mentioned uh, the VCs specialize in certain verticals, right? Yeah. So why they cannot specialize in a few verticals? Why they have to choose prop tech, comtech, or something different? Or are there VCs who do all of them?
0: Yeah. So I think if you look at the majority of VCs, you know, you know, the larger VCs tend to be generous VCs, as in you know they'll do fintech investments they might do health tech investments they might do consumer tech investments just to kind of give some examples right and of course if you work there and you start as an analyst an associate in these organizations you tend to focus more on specific industries and more often that's because you've got some special interest or experience in those industries as well so of course there are specialists within these generalist funds mm-hmm. but at the end of the day you know like getting really deep into an industry you got, I think you kind of need the entire organization that's kind of how we are set up at PropTech One as well because our LPs our relationships are pretty much all people across the the value chain and real estate industry as well so that means it's much faster essentially for us to access good quality objective information on like whether this new startup proposition has some interest you know from a commercial perspective from the market
2: yeah got it okay so um, managing director of the UK in PT, it was proptech one, but now was it rebranded to PT one?
0: Yeah, so we changed the logo. So it's kind of two reasons for that. One, just because PT one's shorter, and so this just sounds a bit more succinct. <laughs> and yeah, secondly, because we yeah we look at construction tech as well, okay. and prop tech means a lot of things to different people. Mm-hmm. It's not really actually the best term That's because true. of that. What would be the better one? Yeah, so PT1 <laughs> kind of like means that, you know, we obviously, we, we do look at construction tech, but for some people reading PropTech1 in the name, yeah. they might think, oh, well, that doesn't include construction tech. So Fine. we're just tired of explaining that again. again, again.
2: Yeah, what does a day in the life of your position look like?
0: A lot of emails. lot of emails, <laughs> yeah. Oh no, mm-hmm. I'm not doing it. A lot of emails a lot of a lot of meetings so there's like I guess three main tasks that you know or responsibilities that I have in my job as UK MD so the overall responsibility is to grow PT1's brand mm-hmm. and you know network and reach towards the industries towards the audiences that matter for us in the UK right and these are different audiences this is the venture and startup community. So that's really large. That's really broad. That's like tech founders. That's other VCs. And that can come from, you know, almost anywhere. I love of it. it's obviously concentrated here in London. But there's so much going on across the country. So yeah, the tech startup community is one of them. Second one is the real estate industry at large. And that's super broad as well, because that translates to like real estate agents to people working in banking and people working in real estate private equity. So very, very different audiences, all very large markets. And finally, construction as well, which is also super broad, right? As you know, there's like engineers, architects, all the way to developers, contractors, subcontractors, individual Mm -hmm. installers. So, of course, not everyone can know us, but we do have, because prop tech and construction tech propositions can often tackle solutions within those individual spaces Mm -hmm. it's really important for us to kind of build our reach out so yeah that's the overall kind of responsibility and then within that that means deal making so sourcing and doing due diligence and researching potential investment areas that means working with our portfolio founders so we have now i think 22 companies in our portfolio since we started investing 22 yeah so out of them you know a few of them are uk startups quite a few of them are continental european startups many of those have expanded into the UK as well. So I also support those companies setting up their London office as well, kind of finding like, you know, maybe a first person or second employee on the ground. And the third part as well is obviously, you know, making sure that we have a strong enough network that can also just help us with due diligence, help us with support. So when when founders come speak to us as a specialized VC, right, there's an expectation that we can make the right introductions to the right people at the right time in our relationship as well. We don't necessarily need to invest in order to, you know, to make valuable introductions. Mm-hmm. At least we invest a very tiny fraction of all the yeah. startups that, that come to us. Mm-hmm. But it's important to us to build relationships with lots of good founders. And in order to actually build those relationships and make introductions, we actually need to have relationships with everyone on the industry side, right? Yeah. So there can be potential customers, there can be potential partners, potential distributors as well.
1: Podcast hosts.
0: And podcast hosts are definitely a big marketing channel <laughs> <founder> as well. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so there's quite a lot of work and there's quite a lot of people yeah. to keep engaged as well.
1: I think, master, out of these 22 businesses that you invested in, what are the categories of these businesses? What What do they do?
0: Sure, I can't list all 22 of yeah, them but because like it would take a lot of time. Like, um, yeah. yeah, so so broadly speaking, well, we used to have this framework. Maybe it's a bit outdated now, to be honest. We used to have this framework, a very, very simple one, right? Like, if you look at the lifecycle we're building, there's the pre-construction stage, there's a the construction stage, and there's a the post-construction stage, right? So within all three of these areas, we can break that down into different themes or different, different businesses as well, right? There's like the financing and planning stage. Mm-hmm. There's the site acquisition or development stage. There's a construction stage as well. Like we can break them down into more and more. All of our 22 investments are startups that fit into one or multiple parts of a building lifecycle. Mm-hmm. So some are construction tech startups like for example, Plan Radar, that fit into the construction period of a building, mm-hmm. right? It's basically like a communication and information aggregation platforms to centralize important information for different stakeholders involved in the construction project into one place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Some can be fitted into or retrofitted into existing buildings, like, for example, EcoWorks or, for example, Neocarbon. So EcoWorks, for example, is replacing the paneling of existing multifamily residential assets to make them into energy efficient that paneling often made from modular manufacturers as well. Or I mentioned Neocarbon, that's retrofitting cooling towers more for industrial real estate assets into direct air capture sources as well. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Not only prop tech
1: businesses, there are construction tech as well. Exactly. PT1 is not just about prop tech. Yeah, the whole kind of, Mm -hmm. well, property is a big word, right? Mm -hmm. So, real estate, construction, property. I like it. It makes sense because it's not, it's very difficult to divide between Uh, prop tech and content and just keep them separate, right?
0: Yeah, I think one area we don't do... So there's a really, really good writer called Brad Hargreaves who is an American chap who founded Common police asterisk let's double check that okay Okay. but yeah um (laughs) brad hargreaves and so he he writes a lot and he's a really really successful serial entrepreneur as well and and brad wrote this article like a couple months back saying like why prop tech is basically a crap term right to use because it kind of broadly speaking and i agree with this it means two types of businesses one is like technology companies that you know add efficiency deliver some value to an existing process in the real estate industry and that's a tech that we invest into, right? So, digitalization startups, sustainability startups, those kind of things. And the other type is like a tech-enabled real estate play, which is, for example, WeWork, for example, right? Mm. Or what WeWork, you know, proposed itself to be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, tech-enabled hospitality play. That's generally the type of companies that we do not invest into. I'm not saying they're not, they can't be successful businesses, they can't be profitable, uh, et cetera, too, but that's generally not what we consider a venture capital case. Mm. Okay. Why, why would that be the case? Because often they're split out in such a structure that they have an operating company and a property company. And so the economic dynamics of that prop co is very similar to the economic dynamics of real estate in general. They're mm-hmm. very sensitive to interest rates. They're very sensitive to generally cost of borrowing. In order to scale up their business, they need to scale up more buildings. And in order to scale up more buildings, you know, like acquiring in a portfolio, for example, in London is going to have a different cost from acquiring a portfolio in I know, Leeds or Manchester or, or Berlin or, as well. So it's very hard to kind of like, keep predictable track of like what that economics look like over time. Whereas if you're investing into like a SaaS software, for example, and it's priced at, I don't know, 100 euros per person per month or something like that, right? Like it doesn't matter where that person is coming mm. from, yeah. et cetera, too. if you've got multiple users, it's that times 100 euros. Mm-hmm. It gives you kind of like more of, you know, yeah. I'm not, I don't want to use predictable because that's not the right word, but you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. you're, you're more visible in terms of kind of where the growth opportunities and the growth drivers are.
2: Yeah, so with that said, what is PT1? What makes it an attractive company to PT1 to invest in?
0: Yeah, so we invest in early stage startups in Europe that are transforming the, the built environment, right? So by early stage, we're looking at, we've done pre-seed deals. In UK this year alone, we've done two pre-seed investments and seed and some series A as well. That's generally kind of our sweet spot. Mm-hmm. So that does vary because a pre-seed company is still very different from like a series A company, right? Like pre-seed, you can have as... This was maybe two founders and maybe one or two early employees compare that to a 30 or 40 you know employee company is still pretty different in terms of setup mm-hmm. i mean the fundamental part is really really strong founders so i'm going to just go into that a bit more detail if i okay, may right. so i'm making this up, but like 95 percent of the investment propositions that we see that are interesting are b2b startups in the prop tech construction tech space right they are selling to the real estate industry they are selling to the construction industry and I think being able to sell B2B requires like a very certain set of skills, which is based on experience, based on your network, who you know really matters, I think. Mm-hmm. And built is also based on a very different sales system as well, a very different marketing system too. So really strong founders that we see are founders who have already some experience either when it comes to managing long sales cycles, still driving industry attention you know getting logos appearing at the right events take climate x as an example it's an investment we made earlier this year as a uk-based b2b prop tech startup they provide data risk analytics for financial service companies and also for real estate companies and so one of the key core reasons for us investing to climate x is because the founders camille and lucky are really 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 great b2b sales leaders as well right like the sales cycles are going to be long because they're always selling to large enterprises and these take time when it comes to making decisions to procure software yeah and you need to kind of manage that process you need to constantly engage constantly attract attention you need to constantly be justifying why your product is superior to other products on the market from a really technical perspective as well and so you know you can be very bright and come out straight from university, but chances are you don't have that network. You, you don't have that experience. So you're going to struggle probably a lot more than someone who's probably been working in that field for a couple of Got years. Scars. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Great. we there with this. Can you just explain broadly what
0: VC is actually and what is a limited partner? Oh, sure. Yeah. Venture capital can be considered a type of asset class, right? So, or a type of investment strategy. It's we deploy capital from LPs or limited partners. Mm-hmm. Who are basically investors putting money into our funds and then we are deploying that funds into an early stage company with low valuation well with very very high potential to grow and to scale their product and therefore scale their business base Mm -hmm. but At this current point in time, you know, it's very early as in they're still developing out their technology, they're still developing out their go-to-market strategies, they're still building their team and management structures, right? So that the hope is that because they're very scalable, they have higher multiples, let's say, than traditional businesses as well when it comes to their enterprise value to revenue ratio or to their profit ratios. And so the value of that company can massively increase in a pretty short amount of time as well. So what VCs look to do is make a return, you know, within our fund life cycles, which are typically, let's say, between eight to 12 years. And so within that, make some investments and then exit those investments in that kind of time frame as well. And by then, you know, if that startup hasn't failed, which is also a possibility given the risk profile of the investments we're making, mm. hopefully has grown substantially so the valuation is also reflecting on it.
1: Okay. So follow up on this. So after how many years you would consider a business not, um, not being a startup anymore? Where <laughs> from the startup it becomes a business? Yeah. What, is there any particular time in this life cycle of this business that it has to or should become profitable to a certain extent?
0: Yeah. So. You know, again, this is kind of like a language, you know, issue of like what's the definition of a startup versus a business. I don't want to get too deep into the weeds of that, but I think fundamentally the let's say the philosophy, I think, of a startup founder may be quite different from the philosophy of a business founder, right? So a business founder is looking to achieve, you know, profitability, well positioning in its market. It's not looking to kind of like basically dominate the market is looking to be one of the market participants Mm -hmm. where startups generally are much more ambitious in terms of what percentage of the market they're trying to capture or maybe even trying to create a new market that didn't exist before like the famous paradigm is for example something like uber right where it wasn't like the market size of uber wasn't the market size of new york taxis it was like creating a whole new market of people who want to leverage some of their time to drive cars and make some income from Mm -hmm, that. mm So, yeah, I think startup founders are much more kind of ambitious in trying to get to a very large, essentially, business. If you measure that by revenue, if you measure that customer base in a very short amount of time. Their way of doing so, their strategy at the core is about researching and developing its technology in order to enable that scalable growth beyond kind of what a traditional business might do, which, you know, could be well positioned in terms of its marketing, in terms of its product, but might not be looking to do something fundamentally different, right? And not take that risk (coughs) of doing something different. So
1: maybe let me rephrase it. So from VC point of view, when is the time that you guys want to see the startup to become profitable? I mean, you can't be funding. It's really very now, years, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So there's a big difference in 2023 versus 2020. 2021, for example, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And that difference in the VC landscape is driven by interest rates too. Mm-hmm. So fundamentally, the cost of capital has gone up a lot. If you're an investor and you've got lots of different options to invest your capital, because interest rates have gone up a lot, therefore the risk-free kind of you know interest for putting your money into something like bonds. Is obviously a lot more attractive now versus putting into someone with more risk. So yeah, that means that it's harder to achieve larger rounds as well. Now, some startups, often ones that are, let's say, series A, series B, you know, if they've got a steady stream of income from their customers and clear kind of growth projections as well, because they understand their growth drivers really well, they also understand, of course, what their running costs are many of those are going towards profitability, right? And what does that actually mean? That means often cutting down on the expenses, but trying to not make that impact, let's say, its existing revenue. It might significantly reduce its its potential to grow revenue in a short amount of time because maybe, for example, you're cutting down on marketing resources. But... The idea there is that you can switch on or switch off some dials in order to kind of get to profitable. Now, that's very, very, very hard for much earlier stage startups because they don't have that stable kind of customer base and revenue most of the time in order to do that as well. By early stage, do we measure it in years or in certain other... Um, you, can count, you can measure by headcount. You can measure it by amount of funding it's attracted over a series of time as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all pretty vague language yeah. and words <laughs> but it's not just sorry just to finish the point it's not just like series A, series B stars. like big tech companies as well are have put less money basically into their research and development and have cut have made a lot of headcount cuts as well this has been for example very public news and companies like Microsoft and companies like Google mm-hmm. both these companies obviously super huge and they've shed thousands of jobs actually in the last couple of months
2: yeah sure what does PT1's due diligence process look like?
0: yeah so we have a pretty set operation now that's developed actually a couple of, after a couple of years of not trial and error, but basically working closely and closely together. So probably one of the most important things of any VC in terms of how it differentiates itself is the culture, right? And the culture is obviously made of the leadership and the people who are inside it. Now, VCs are, the vast majority of VCs are quite small organizations at the end of the day, right? We're talking about like, I think PT1 has something like 15 people, mm-hmm. you know, Maybe 15, I I think so. But whatever, like most VCs are maybe like 20 to 50 people. And so each person's kind of like style of work and communication interaction with others really, really matters. Like finding that cultural fit is probably the most important thing towards kind of like being Mm -hmm. successful in in your kind of VC organization and VC career as well. This is also true, for example, of I think like working in boutique consulting, for example, Mm -hmm. working for other, yeah, smaller but you know quite boutique companies anyway so what does our investment process look like like so we get inbound deals so come either other investors or companies directly reach out to us how know. many pitch decks per year a couple hundred per month right <laughs> oh, <laughs> wow. times that okay. obviously how, how by can, 12
1: how can you process it right? what, what's
0: the yeah so we, we we try to <laughs> we try to input you know like a type form and some founders go through it and we're very grateful for that because that provides like a nice structured mm-hmm. flow of, of information mm-hmm. not everyone does you know, I hope more people do that. <laughs> Please. It only takes two minutes. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, obviously. So we compile lots of input and on, we do outbound as well, right? So we send some founders like LinkedIn messages yeah. or emails, or we ask, you know, if we have a mutual connection by whatever, you know, we ask for a friendly introduction as well. If there's a particular theme of property construction tech companies that we're looking into as well. So anyway, we receive all these like opportunities, right? And then we generally have a first 30 minute call with some of them. And if there's a right kind of fit, because like, they're kind of raising the right size round for us as a not too large companies doing something quite interesting again very variable about what interesting means basically yes. at that time, time stage of time but just take it yeah, for yeah. now yeah. then we'll do a second call a bit longer maybe involve another colleague as well and then by that time basically what we're trying to do is build like a full picture of what that startup's doing in a short amount of time as possible to from their internal information. And then once we have that or in parallel of doing that, we're also asking our industry connections as in people who already work in that market who might be potential customers or, you know, existing incumbents, right? Depends totally on what that startup is doing. And just asking them, you know, what do you think basically of what this company is doing? You know, is it positive? Mm. Is it negative as well? This is where having a very wide LP base, investor base, you know, for our funds is really helpful because they've invested in our funds, they invest in our success as well. So obviously they're going to give objective and timely feedback to us as well. So we try to get a picture from our interactions with the founders and, you know, the information that they're sending us. We're also complementing that with the picture we're getting from the market as well. And if both of those are great, we have a scorecard essentially every Wednesday. We review that internally with the investment team. I won't go in too much into detail in terms of what that framework looks like. Mm-hmm. But there's a scoring mechanism. And then once that score is, is very good and we, we, there's no kind of like immediate red flags that we're seeing, present that to our managing partners. We also meet once a week there. We have a discussion. It turns into debate. If it's interesting and good, managing partners then have a call and then we do some other checks. And then that's like the first half of the due diligence process, which is basically just involving us and our (coughs) friendly contacts. The second half is then involving paid services, essentially, right? So lawyers, potentially uh, technical consultants, depending on on what that product is. If it's something like a material startup, you know, like, I'm not a material scientist or mm-hmm. any of my background. So therefore, Good relying on labs. Exactly, exactly, yeah. And that can take some time as well.
2: Yeah, okay. What would you say is a red flag?
0: I was going there's say. loads, yeah. <laughs> there's loads, right, yeah. Immediate red flags. Yeah, so the first two or three or four that come to mind, one would be cap table. So, for example, if there's already a lot of existing investors mm. in an early stage. If the founders aren't owning, let's say, majority, or close to majority share yeah. mm-hmm. in a company and their founders aren't involved day to day into the running and the growth of that company as well. That's probably a red flag for us, right? Because we mm-hmm. obviously want to invest in the founder's success fundamentally mm-hmm. and they should be incentivized to do so as well. Yeah. So that's pretty, that's one. Another one would just be our interaction with the founders. Like if something's not feeling right, basically, in terms of our communication with them, you know, there's not... Chemistry, no chemistry. Exactly. So yeah, sometimes that can be a deal breaker. So obviously you invest in them in the long term as well, so... Yeah, so you have to have yeah, there has to be a relationship, great foundation in the yeah. first place. Yeah, so stuff like that.
1: Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. So out of these uh, hundreds of pitch decks a month, is there any particular theme that just
0: currently? Um, yeah. So when we're looking at
1: apart from sustainability.
0: <laughs> yeah. So so it, it is climate, but and I'll, I'll tell you kind of why it's climate. The first reason is because personally, like myself and everyone else on board PropTech One, you know has a strong belief that the economy should be decarbonized right, as quickly as possible and whatever role that we can play in that decarbonization transition, that feels good for us, right? Yeah. Gives a sense of purpose. Now, from a market perspective, as we said, most of these propositions we're looking at and interested in are B2B propositions as well. And with climate tech, there is often the case of a much stronger business need in a timeframe to adopt this new technology as well. Mm-hmm. What do I mean by that? let's say someone is coming in with like a productivity tool, right? And it's marginally maybe a bit better than whatever already existing productivity tools that this construction company is using for its projects as well. There's a whole process of having to learn this new tool, setting up the logins, you know, like learning the interface, blah, 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 transitioning, and that's costly. And so if you can't see the clear benefit, basically, you might just go, sorry, like it's nice to have, but... Climate is very different, right? Because the larger companies are under increased scrutiny from regulation, from the customers, from banks and other lenders as well, from lots and lots of different very, very powerful parties mm. who are saying, you know, you have to decarbonize or you have to show what you're doing to decarbonize within a certain frame of time as well. Mm-hmm. So that creates the time pressure essentially for these companies to adopt it as well. So even if it's painful, right, from a implementation point of view, like, you still have to do it because if you're not doing it, you'll be penalized as well. Most of the case, certainly in Europe, which is where we only make our investments as well.
1: It feels like the best motivation is uh, legislation.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's one, it's one motivation. But we also have to be careful that like a startup we're investing in isn't only being... Dependent on the... Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, because
1: exactly. that could just change, right? Exactly. exactly. Came over. You mentioned... That people, so the f- people who invest LP LPs, right, limited yeah. partners that yeah. invest in your fund, yes, right, and then this money is redistributed into startups. Yes, that's right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. How people can invest in the in the venture capital, or can they? Uh,
0: yeah, we do have quite a few individuals who are investors for our funds. They tend to be actually quite people who quite senior, essentially from the real estate industry. So to kind of give you some examples from both Fund One and Fund Two. Klaus Feiberg has been a backer from the early days of PropTech One. He used to be CEO of a company called Venovia, which is the largest listed real estate company in, in Germany. And, you know, he's a very influential guy, basically, when it comes to the particular German real estate market as well. Timo Scharmler used to be CEO of JL in Germany as well. So PropTech One is a German VC, yeah, yeah. so mm-hmm. we have a lot of uh, yeah. German investors that are based on that foundation. Now, So, so the, the point is, so we have individuals and we have organizations as well. Mm-hmm. And yeah, if, uh, if anyone's interested in investing, I'm very happy to talk and uh, kind of yeah, take you through the process.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Would you say that the green revolution is all hype?
0: Can you define what the green revolution means?
2: Like the interests and, and investment and people jumping perhaps into climate tech and that kind of
0: thing. I think that I no, I don't think it's hype right, firstly. And secondly, to kind of really elaborate that on that, there's a lot of things that businesses and individuals can be doing to make more green decisions. And I think where a lot of legislators have kind of realized is that the more immediate impact for green changes to be made can be made more efficiently on B2B rather than B2C. Mm-hmm. I.e. it's more efficient to convince entire organizations to be more green in terms of their supply chain, in terms of their manufacturing product lines, in terms of the end products themselves versus convincing individuals, for example, that you can't eat meat, for example, because Hmm. that has a much higher greenhouse gas emission than eating soy-based products or or you can't drive a petrol car, et cetera. Of course, that legislation is happening too. You know, in the UK, there's a ban, I think 2030, right, of buying new petrol and diesel cars. But yeah, for organisations, it's happening a lot, 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 lot more.
1: Yeah. yeah. Okay. I got a question about investment decisions. But before that, so PT One is um, German broadly. Speaking, Correct. Right? Yeah, it's a German yeah. headquartered uh, yeah, German
0: European fund. Right? Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Uh,
1: and so, how can you? You must have some views. Uh, contact PropTech in the UK, in uh, in the Euro, in Europe, and maybe in other places in the world. How would you? compare activities in various geographics? Geo-
0: yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very familiar with the UK scene, I think, now. And I'm quite familiar with Germany in particular. So maybe I'll start with the UK versus Germany comparison, mm-hmm. that's okay. And yeah. then I think when it comes to construction tech, I actually think the UK grant system is really, really well developed. So there are quite a few bodies. Probably the biggest ones are UKRI, the UK mm-hmm. Research and Innovation Council, mm-hmm. which awards innovation grants, essentially, to... Productivity startups, to startups helping productivity in construction, to startups helping make construction more green, to startups, for example, addressing labor shortages in construction. So these macro problems basically that are affecting the construction industry. So I think that process of like getting R&D credits or getting direct grants is really really well developed in the UK. And the great thing about those startups that get those uh, benefits is that they also become publicized as well. So there's entire databases essentially of where you can find those startups as well. And that just means actually speaking to founders is is pretty easy. Similarly, I think we have really well-developed communities. Some are kind of like public communities, some are private communities, et cetera, too, of construction tech founders and construction tech startups as well. I don't know if that's just a part of me being in London in that scene for a couple of years now, but I've always felt like it's actually a really it, yeah. nice, well fleshed <laughs> out. When it comes to adoption from construction companies of construction tech startups, I think that's where it becomes slightly more frayed in the UK versus, for example, somewhere like Germany. If I mm. have to be honest, I don't know why. I cannot give you clear reasons why. I'm just, I just think that German construction companies, from my observations at least, seem to be not only more experimental when it comes to adopting construction tech, but also like if it works, they're actually they seem to be much more efficient in terms of actually deploying that at scale across multiple of their projects as well. So I think that's one kind of, yeah, I I don't know why, but but,
2: yeah. Interesting. I think Christoph mentioned a company in the German, I want to say like Goldbeck or something, which is like a highly innovative and digitized construction contractor.
0: Yeah, I I can't remember the name. Yeah, I mean, we're very close to that company.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe something to do with it.
0: Yes, Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Okay, If I can, before we move to the Go next one. It. So how hard is it, Kingmat to figure out which business or founder or idea or startup is going to take off or not?
0: I don't have a magic ball, right? I mean, uh-huh. I wish, but you know, I don't. Know. no one does, right? So, you know, I, I don't think a, a startup success isn't just based on the idea or just based on the founder, right? It's based a lot on timing. It's based mm-hmm. a lot on luck. It's based a lot on, you know, the, the allies that basically they attracted on the way. So, I think earlier you asked a question about like, what do we look for founders, et cetera, too. You know, I've talked about B2B leaderships. Maybe a much better answer is actually just overall great leadership because I think great leaders attract great people, right? And those people are going to be your colleagues. They're going to be your customers. They're going to be your partners. They're going to be your friends as well. And so, really, really, really great leaders basically in this space. So, Mm -hmm. how hard it is to find good leaders? I think one of the things that attracted me to this job certainly is to be able to identify good leaders mm. and maybe learn from them as well. So I think over time, I think I've maybe got a bit, bit better, more experience at that at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: I would like to ask some more questions about like the ideal founder okay. and how that looks for you guys. Obviously, you mentioned like great leadership, being very close and attached to the long sales cycles. Would you say that top founders are highly intelligent people?
0: Yeah, I, I think they are highly intelligent people. I think probably not... <laughs> the most like top five percent or ten percent intelligent in the population. I'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. It's because startup is bloody mad, right? Like, it's, <laughs> yeah, you it's got so kind painful. of stupid to want to do it. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And I think if you're really, really, really smart, you will realise kind of what yeah, the yeah, yeah. <laughs> what the dangers are. But yeah, of course, they're very intelligent. Yeah, 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 yeah. very resourceful. I should say.
2: And what's some uh, do you see like some common habits that these people integrate into their like perhaps work life? or even maybe outside of work.
0: It's not healthy but definitely work ethic, right? Yeah. Like there's just a correlation between like working not just like long hours but also intensely, you know, yeah. being really engaged with every conversation they're having, which mm-hmm. is obviously just tiring, right? They have to have this passion, this fire, I think inside yeah. them and to and to to maintain that energy, you know, traveling lots of places as well, up and down the country, different country, different parts of the world as well, you know. That is very very draining, so it's not an easy it's going to be a lot of sacrifice. It's not mm-hmm. nine to five, right? No. No. No.
2: 24-7. What mistakes do founders make when they are pitching their businesses?
0: Oh, wow. Okay. Good question. Sorry. So mistakes that founders make, I think, so couple, I guess, some founders try to play the FOMO game, right? The fear of missing out game to investors. I don't think that works very well. So it's like, hey, hey, this is who I am, but I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to do because if you don't know, then you don't know. Really? And, you know, these other guys know. So if you don't know, then <laughs> oh, that sucks yeah. for you. That wouldn't work. So yeah, they, there's a lot of, there's sometimes a lot of ego, unfortunately, involved. Yeah. That's not, that's not nice. And so that's just going to land with a, with a no. So that's probably one mistake. I think another mistake is just not getting everything ready in time. Like it's a very intense process to do due diligence. I think with any investor, including ourselves, So not having the materials set, not having the the time set, right? I think that's the more, the bigger thing. So every VC is going to ask slightly different questions. Some might be the same questions or some might be different iterations of the same questions, but we all expect a response. And creating that response, creating that response to the high quality requires time. Like it's unlikely that someone's just going to answer something in like five minutes or 10 minutes. So it's actually about like kind of managing your time. So if you're spending a lot of your time whilst pitching, also chasing after customers, also hiring your team, also managing HR issues happening in organization too, probably that's juggling too much. Mm-hmm. So it's we always advise our portfolio founders when you're going in the pitching mode or time frame, you have to focus on that, right? And you have to therefore delegate all the other tasks to your colleagues.
2: Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah, how does the dynamic change for a founder when they go from... I don't know if this is an actual occurrence. I guess it probably is. But when someone has like bootstrapped their way and got to like mm, a good stage. Yeah. And then they decide, right, we're going to go raise some VC money. Yeah. How does that change? And in addition to that, like are some people, I don't know if you've experienced this, but are some people like completely shocked when they go from like bootstrapping to like being yeah, VC and, yeah, yeah, and, like, yeah. and like thinking, shit, this isn't actually what I wanted to do.
0: Yeah. I was actually having a conversation with my colleagues from Germany who's over in London yesterday, Costa, And yeah, we, we were talking about I was asking, Costa, like, have you seen founders who have bootstrapped, right? And you can bootstrap through two ways, essentially. One, through bootstrapping through equity, as in, you know, I've injected, <coughs> I know, 50K of my cash into a new business, and therefore the business is worth 50K because it's got 50K in cash in that bank account. Or 50K in debt as well, right? With the expectation that the investors back that debt, essentially, mm-hmm. once to fundraiser as well. Maybe to answer your question, actually, more directly, it's about... so. I have met founders who have set up very successful business in the past, right? Or been very senior CEOs, big senior title at big company as well. And then suddenly they're doing a startup and they're fundraising for the first time. And it's a very, very, very different dynamic, I think, when it comes to fundraising. And it's also very different dynamics when you're hiring startup people versus when you're very senior in a large organization, you're kind of hiring for those roles as well. And the conclusion is actually, they struggle actually a lot as well in terms of actually getting traction, even though they've got impressive resumes and track backgrounds and stuff like that. I think there is a sort of different, you know, sort of culture that you have to tap into to kind of like, yeah raised successfully from from vcs as well so it's probably worthwhile kind of like spending time with that
2: yeah, yeah yeah actually experience it before you just go and sign a bit of paper yeah for a lot of cash
0: yeah and also the other thing to say of course is that uh, you know absolutely there are many 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 successful businesses and successful startups that that have never raised money from vc you know mm. i've raised money from external family friends <laughs> or whatever as well and they've been profitable and they've grown ever since and that's that's totally fine as yeah, well. yeah
2: yeah, yeah there's plenty of ways to do it
0: yes
1: So what is the, do you guys have like hands-on approach on the startups or you, what's, broadly speaking, the VC approach when they work with startups?
0: So my approach, and I think this is true of pretty much everyone on our team, is that we want to be WhatsApp friendly, right? (laughs) So like, my phone, is reachable to any of the founders that we, we've we invested in at any time. And so, they do message me at different times, right? Mm-hmm. And so, I just...
2: 6 a.m. on a Saturday.
0: Exactly. And I'll respond, right? And, and if I ask something as well, I shouldn't feel any discomfort, essentially, in messaging them as well. I'm not expecting them an answer, whatever, mm-hmm. the next day, but we shouldn't have that friction in the first place. Yeah. So that's a feeling. Mm-hmm. That's about as hands-on as it gets in terms of, like, day-to-day communications. And then how hands-on we get in terms of more general topics entirely depends on what's happening with the startup right so when there's a distress situation for example we've had some startups where co-founders have left the company we've had some startups where maybe raising funding rounds have been a bit slower than 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 anticipated to so suddenly cash flow becomes an issue as well Mm -hmm. these are topics where suddenly like everyone needs to like roll Mm. up their elbows and say, how do we solve this problem in the most practical and fair and way forward as well. So that's, of course, when we get really intense. But when things are going well, we also like to just be as hands off as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So
1: not to deteriorate.
0: Anyway. Yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah. 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 So do you have like weekly meetings with founders or yeah. I'm just curious about this dynamic? For the companies that we have board seats on, you know, we have regular meetings, depending on the regularity of the board. Sometimes it's once every month, sometimes it's once every quarter or every two months. We have impromptu monthly, weekly is too. It's okay. very regular. Yeah. So what sort of reporting? I'm not asking about PT1. Yeah,
1: sure. But broadly speaking, what sort of reporting uh, startup founder has to
0: comply with uh, yeah. when they deal with VCs usually? Yeah, so I think I've learned some best practices, right? In terms of how VCs communicate with investors over time. So the two best practices I want to share is one is on the investor newsletter and the other is on the investor WhatsApp distribution list, which is really, really handy. Floodflash do this really well. So to the monthly newsletter, right? So that is a newsletter that goes out every month to investors. And the best ones I've seen are ones that are really clearly structured with team updates, financial updates, customer lead updates, successes, investor asks. Maybe I'm forgetting a section, but I think those five sections are already very good and inspirational quotes. What's really nice, inspirational quotes, yeah. Yeah. The journey of a thousand steps Whatever. Um, <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: So so what's really nice is that it's all very very clear, it's very well structured. And if there's anything specific that an investor can do to help something. For example, we're hiring for a CTO. Please input any names of potential CTOs you know into this Google Docs or Mm -hmm. whatever right Mm -hmm. so that makes it as interactive as possible you're not just reading something but you're engaging the content in order to help that startup most directly that's really really good and then the other is the the WhatsApp uh, distribution so WhatsApp has this great feature where you know you can add people onto a distribution list and that means you can just send one message and that message will send out to everyone on a distribution Mm -hmm. list as well Mm -hmm. so I've seen I'm on the investors' distribution list for quite a few different startups as well. And they just say basically like, here's a key win, you know? Like, we just won this company. You don't need to save it for the, for the newsletter. It just takes a couple of seconds yeah. to write. It's very good. Impromptu up. Keeps you engaged. Yeah, yeah no. Nice. He hasn't mentioned Slack. Yeah? Slack. He hasn't mentioned. I haven't mentioned Slack because I'm not on Slack. <laughs> 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 I used to be on Slack when I was working startups. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Yeah. I
1: just feel WhatsApp is much easier to communicate
0: on every yeah. level
2: that's why I like everyone uses it It will, maybe this is a bit of a subject point but like you know some people are trying to solve an issue in construction is communication yes mm. and people are trying to solve it with various tools mm. different even like Procore one of the biggest construction tech companies even has like a almost like a chat function that they've just recently released but the default is always WhatsApp yeah and it's like say to your site guys put a photo on on uh, Procore <laughs> Yeah. Just go default to WhatsApp. Yeah. And communicate yeah. WhatsApp, WhatsApp, WhatsApp. So,
0: yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, it wasn't always this way, right? But I think just in the last couple of years, WhatsApp has really dominated. Yeah. yeah. And yeah.
2: I don't think there's anything wrong with it as long as you can integrate it somehow in into In the it.
1: UAE, it's absolute norm. Everyone uses WhatsApp. Is, not no one, but people use WhatsApp for everything instead of email. Mm. So that's, Martin, uh, yes. do you have another question on this, yeah, I wanted, this section? Yeah, I, want, I wanted to touch on. Um, economic environment currently. Yeah. How, yeah. how do you see it? So you mentioned earlier that there were different environment due to rates, much lower rates in 2021. Now we have got, now we are in 2023, there are much higher interest rates. Mm-hmm. And how does it impact venture capital business? Okay. How does it impact also quality of startups
0: that are emerging right now? Do, do you want me to answer that question for in general or for specifically for construction? Because they're, they're quite different answers, I think. Okay. Well, both. Both. Okay, cool. So yeah, so in general, there's a lot of people who say, both founders and investors, who say that actually a really good time to start a startup is during a downturn. Yeah. During downturns, there are job losses. So mm. therefore, there's actually greater pool of people that more easy to hire. When during the early days, you know, there's very little traction and that can go on for a while. But when the economy picks up, then hopefully you've, you're you lucky in terms of your timing as well to actually start picking up some brands recognition, momentum in terms of your sales as well. And so you can kind of like ride that rising tide. Now, I don't know if we're in a downturn or not. There seems to be a lot of uncertainty, a lot of mixed opinions around whether UK, Europe, etc. is in a downturn. Hmm. I'm not going to really, I'm not bold enough to give a clear view about that. But whatever, that's just something I think it's probably to say. I think in terms of, yeah, I think, so I've been working in like tech VC for like, I don't know, 10 years, let's say, right? Maybe eight or nine. It's not the longest amount of time, but definitely the dynamics of let's say the UK startup scene now compared to like eight years ago. I remember like when the first WeWork opened in Wargate, and they <laughs> ch- they threw all these like great parties and great events. It's really different now. Hmm. It feels much more professionalized. I think. Yeah. I think. Uh, yeah, and it kind of. I don't know. It doesn't seem as dynamic maybe as it was where it seemed a bit more free-spirited, I think like eight, nine years ago. I think there's something to be said about that. I don't know how that reflects the quality of startups. Maybe because it's professionalized, everyone's actually much more polished when it comes to presenting and stuff. But mm. I don't know. I just thought maybe like eight, nine years ago, the exciting thing was back then, like the iPhone or mobile phone, smartphones in general and like building an app for this and an app for that. And I think back then there were a lot of like different people created whereas now it's almost like a sort of like its own institution basically and mm. so whatever that was very british i think that's what's happened isn't it god <laughs> come britishized yeah and yeah. then for sorry i was going to ask for construction but if you have any other questions no no no, go for it, it go i think construction's worth talking about because obviously this is a construction tech podcast yes. right yeah, and yeah. um i think there's it's so interesting what's happening with real estate developments obviously i'm not an encyclopedia in terms of the market right but you know there's a lot of shift around where offices have been built and if offices have been built versus other types of buildings like residential buildings, for example. There's I know there's a lot more capital, for example, now being interested in residential as an asset class mm-hmm. versus traditional commercial real estate, which is mostly in offices. Similarly, I know there's a lot of investment and therefore a lot of building into logistics centers, right? But that seems to have slowed down in recent years because maybe UK has become quite saturated in that mm-hmm. too. So the types of buildings being built is actually very dynamic. And I think at this point in time, you know, we're looking at kind of housing solutions and we're looking at planning permissions, et cetera, to, to reduce the frictions there. Mm -hmm. We're looking at ways to reduce the cost there as well. We're looking at ways to improve the infrastructure around kind of new development sites as well to make maybe areas that are less well connected, more attractive places to live as well, because things are very concentrated, but who knows, right? Like government policy and drives a lot of direction of this as well. And so this is a very changing field as well in the UK. (coughs) So, how does that therefore affect construction tech? Well, fundamentally, if, if the company's building different things, then I think tech needs to get adapted to that mm-hmm. as well. Both prop tech and construction tech too. So maybe looking at residential focused technology, maybe a life sciences focused technology is is more of an interesting space.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay. Okay. We had some questions from some people who, who gave us some, oh, okay. some questions. Shout out to Paul Hemming. I hope you understand this question better than The person asking it, I e me. So, what valuation multiples are you seeing today, and your predictions for like the next one to three years?
0: Yeah, it's obviously a spread. It's obviously a range depending on the stage of the startup. But maybe,
1: maybe what is valuation multiple?
0: Okay, sure. So, if the company is making, let's say, one million of turnover or revenue per year, there and is valued at ten million, then that is a valuation multiple of ten x revenue. Got you.
2: Yeah. So. He did explain that to me, but I just forgot it. <laughs> as in Paul who asked it.
0: Yeah. So so valuation multiples are lower now, as in the dilution <laughs> that a founder is diluting their their equity by per investment round is greater. There's an in, yeah inverse relationship there compared to two years ago. So I don't know, maybe like a, I, I've seen like a range, let's say from like 3x to like 10x, whereas maybe two years ago, I was more looking at like 6x to 20x, mm. something like that. A re- re- revenue, what was this, that? That is, yeah. But I'm not like I only see a, f- a lot of founders ask this question, right? Because of course they they have they're fundamentally curious about how they price their their, mm-hmm. their investment round, and the feedback I always give is I see a very very limited perspective because at the end of the day I only look at certain types of startups, prop tech and construction tech, and also when most startups talk to come talk to me, it's it's very early on in their fundraising, so there's no valuations kind of set as well. And by the time we get to that conversation where we're talking about valuation, they've already gone through a lot of diligence process mm. as well. Yeah. But anyway, I don't think anyone can give a comprehensive answer. Yeah.
1: It just depends. Do you want to ask Vlad? It's very long. <laughs> Thanks. So basically what our friend Vlad is asking is, uh, what are VCs looking for? Are they looking for uh, 25 million pound business or 100 million pound business or 1 billion pound business?
0: Yeah, I mean... The larger, the, the more realistic, right? But there's probably the, the more practical answers to give is like, what's like the smallest multiple that would make sense for, for VC? So it depends on a lot of things. The main variable depends on is like the fund size, the fund timelines as well. But just to give an example, so kind of speaking from a fund manager's perspective now. So if, for example, we have, let's say, a 100 million fund, right? we want to deliver something like minimum 3x returns. 300 million, right? In to, how many years? In our fund life cycle. Like, so, ten year, eight, okay. 8 to 10 years, right? Mm-hmm. So, don't need to be too specific there, but something mm-hmm. like that. So, the point is that if we invest, let's say, 5 million into a company, we want that 5 million to turn into, well, obviously, as much money as possible, right? But realistically, if we want to return something like 300 million from that 100 million pool and we invested 5 million somewhere, we need that 5 million to return way more than 3x of 5 million, which is 15 million. And the reason why is because we expect some of our startups in our portfolios to fail, right? So not every startup. So it's kind of averaged out, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it's, assuming this startup succeeds, right, and does really, really well in its valuation, we want that 5 million investment to return maybe like 50 million or maybe 100 million. So that means the startup will have to grow by 10x mm-hmm. or 20x, right? in order to to give us something like 50 to 100 million back as well. So therefore, if the valuation of the company that's coming to us today to get 5 million, let's say it's like a 20% dilution, right? That means to raise 5 million, you're raising a 25 million valuation. Oh, sorry, what is 10x or 20x of 25 million? It's 250 million to 500 million, right? So hopefully that gives you an idea of the mass kind of Mm, like uh, we're we're doing in the background, right? So any company that doesn't have an ambition of less than 250 million valuation it's just not worthwhile for us. Interesting. Right.
1: Okay. So let's say a VC invested in a business and then it was, and the business returned only 3x. Yeah. And like, do you guys, and it, it's been eight years yeah, since, yep. since this happened and they are still going, they're still trying, they are still pushing. Are you exiting or are you
0: staying further? So there are penalties for a fund manager to hold on to his investments past the investment and holding period life, past the life cycle of the okay. funds.
2: Is that like a regulatory thing?
0: It's a part of the LPE agreement, yeah. right? right? So okay. when you inv- your investors demand liquidity basically back within that time frame. I
2: see, okay, fine. Right?
0: So that's why often a lot of secondaries happen, i.e. VCs sell shares basically of companies that they've invested in too long that mm-hmm. hasn't grown as much.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Quick question that we wanted to ask that came in from a dinosaur So basically, this dinosaur wanted to live a very balanced life, but he was asked by a VC about his other commitments outside of his business. Essentially, uh-huh. the VC was implying that if you have other commitments, then we're not the people for you. Is this a real occurrence in the VC world?
0: I can see where the VC is coming from. Mm-hmm. So, yes, obviously the answer is depends on what commitments the other person has, how long that takes. Is there a conflict, you know, between their various different businesses as well or are there synergies and so you know I, I don't want to take like a black and white prescriptive approach towards saying like no we're going to reject investing into a guy who's uh, got if, a family well okay yeah sorry i thought it meant multiple <laughs> work but yeah absolutely the but, dinosaur you know, has two kids <laughs> okay yeah if it's just the oh, two no. kids oh. that's the other part of the life then, yeah absolutely yeah if it's more about because that you know the gentleman or the lady is running another business or mm. has a part-time job on the side, whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's That's very different. Yeah.
2: Okay. Now, because, Kingma, you asked us to ask tough questions. Yes. We went into some large language models and asked us, give us the toughest ever question.
0: <laughs> wow. Okay. Okay. So you typed on chat GPT, so we
2: got one from chat GPT and one from Llama. <laughs>
0: okay. Uh, Llama okay. is
2: created by Meta.
0: Yeah. The one from
2: chat is excuse the word the question is quite basic but I'll read it out word for word anyway so how does one reconcile the paradox of human existence understanding our insignificance in the vastness of the universe while still finding purpose meaning and joy in our individual lives it's a good question I think.
0: it's a beautiful question yeah I'm not religious but one religion I really like is Taoism <coughs> so I think one of the uh, appeals of Taoism and you know the books the core books of Taoism like Tao ching and H-1-Z, they are they're looking to address that kind of question in metaphorical ways. Mm, okay. Yeah. They're so looking to Taoism maybe to give a give a better understanding of the answer. Or better understanding la- of the question.
2: Let's ask the language model what their Taoism
0: answer would be. Yeah, exactly. What would Lao say?
2: Okay. Come ask the Lama one.
1: No, that's too do. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I think this would take too long anyway. Yeah, that's too long. So how do you stay uh, informed yeah. and on the edge of the information as a VC? and the
0: industry it's a very human related business which is ironic because we're investing in tech <laughs> but yeah so i think mean, like we are pretty switched on right in terms of like reading lots of news articles and linkedin whatever but but the main thing is because we like to foster good relationships with people who are really interested in this field whether or not that they're their founders is irrelevant right as long as they engage as long as they're asking interesting questions and doing their own research and happy to share that over coffees or because they're publishing something you know on their social network then that always really really good as well we have a lot of friends i think you know in our network in our industry as well and we try to be interesting for them because we see quite a lot of interesting stuff and we receive interesting news back as well so yeah it's it's a very 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 social game
1: Mm -hmm. okay how do people who are not vc uh, but would like to become or get more familiar
0: with the industry yeah uh, and learn pretty much how can they get knowledge a lot of vcs offer internships and i think that's a pretty good entryway just to to see if it's the right fit i also think you have to be very very clear in terms of why you want to be a vc as well i think there's a lot of people with good ambitions you know and maybe actually vc isn't really the right pathway for them to kind of best achieve those ambitions either so i'm always happy to kind of share more detail about kind of what i mean from that as well based on my experience too but, yeah, look at internship opportunities. And also, by the way, doing angel investments isn't like actually, it could be a couple of hundred pounds basically. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Obviously, it can be, that can be a lot for some people. But if you actually have a couple of some savings and you have interest in this field, then why not basically make some angel investments as well? And UK is really well equipped for this because we have SEIS and yeah. EIS as well.
2: Yeah. Cause that's tax free, right? You can do that through your business. You can do these investments yeah. as well yeah. if you're yeah. self employed.
0: Correct. Yeah, do I have the long
2: list of other off-topic questions? No, I don't. Any more from you, Martin? Have do you got have
1: any any good book on the that you can recommend on the subject of venture capital?
0: Yes, yes, I do. I haven't finished reading it, so <laughs> I'm not gonna. <laughs> yeah, there's a really good book that came out maybe two or three years ago, and it's really more about the history of venture capital. Mm. But I think that's really nice, just to kind of therefore kind of give lots of stories about. Mm why venture capital chose different things mm-hmm. and I'm literally trying to remember it now but it'll come back to me very soon. Luke actually explained
2: with the, a brief history of venture capital and I believe what he said was that it was
0: after it came war. about after
2: World War Two, yeah. right? And you mentioned earlier that obviously downturn is a great time to innovate. So obviously mm-hmm. VC was created at the end of a war yeah, in order to
1: drive innovation production of things yeah and just adjust to the demand growing demand from people who were not dying in the war but they were now yeah ready
0: exactly yeah I mean fundamentally great businesses are great solutions <coughs> as well yeah, so yeah. yeah in downturns you often get a lot of problems so yeah, yeah. yeah so
2: yeah cool alright last question then pick a number between 1 and 20 should I say it? yep oh, okay uh, oh it's not a magic trick okay <laughs>
0: 12
2: <laughs> 12 if you could talk to animals, which species would you want to converse with? Uh, I mean, you may already talk to animals, but the,
0: the, the platypus. <laughs> the
2: platypus. <laughs> yeah, lots of mystery. Wow, okay, nice. Yeah. Can I ask why? Uh, it's just a weird animal, isn't it? <laughs> so you just want to ask like like why, why and, and yeah know, what well, it does. Just, I'm just trying to imagine what his voice would be like. <laughs> like mow, 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 yeah, does it
0: quack or is yeah.
2: it squeak? <laughs> but, <yeah. laughs>
0: so many questions. questions. Try. You need
2: to try. All right, Kingwell. Where can we find out more about you?
0: You can find out more about One by visiting our website, pt1.vc. Mm-hmm. And follow us on LinkedIn as well. We post very regularly, you know, in terms of stuff that we like to share. And I'm very reachable as well, to be honest. So you can always add me on LinkedIn or send me a message as well. And yeah, yeah, go from there. Cool. Well, wow. thank you very much. Thank you very much, King. Cool. Thanks, guys. Thank, you. thank you.
2: Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Bricks and Bytes podcast. If you are enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you
1: listen to your podcasts. We really appreciate it, and we'll catch you in the next episode.